please join me in welcoming back Professor Paul Lips to our member event, member class series. Good. Thank you very much. Um, I have been told that at, for the lunchtime events, I must stop exactly at 1.15. So what I'm going to try and do, and you'll if you can help me, I want to make my presentation a little bit shorter to allow you to ask more questions. I find your questions very interesting and very informative and useful for me. It helps me to sometimes understand what people want to know about. And then the next lecture I go to, the next time I'll be invited, which is 2049, uh, <laughs> I'll, know what, uh, I'll know what I should be learning. Um, the, um, another nice thing, by the way, of being here is that you people will be in Israel in October. And Ari says that if I behave myself and I actually give all 32 lectures, by the way, he doesn't know that I'm not going to the rabbi's one. I'm not a card-carrying rabbi. They can sit and do what they want, and I'm going to have a sleep. So uh, Ari says if I can uh, behave myself, then uh, I'll be honored by meeting those of you who are coming to Israel in October. Uh, and uh, that will be wonderful. I love meeting people who I've seen before. And um, I might have some new information. At that time, I'll ask my wife if I should know anything new. Um, Syria. This is really, uh, of all the Middle Eastern countries, 23 countries, this is a country which I would describe as being the most in three realms. First realm, most tragic. Uh, the pre-war population of Syria was 21 million. Of that population, 11 million are displaced, not living at home. And the reason they're not living at home is that home doesn't exist. They didn't not live at home because they were living in New York and wanted to go to Florida for this winter. No homes. Um, Five million, which means half of the displaced people, are living in Arab countries as refugees. Arab refugees are not treated well in other Arab countries. So, although you've got a place to go, not a, a particularly wonderful situation. Second tragedy. The number of millions of people who have died in the Syrian civil war is unclear, some many millions, the reason I don't quote figures because I hear such wide ranges, but that doesn't include the masses and masses of people who are suffering from chemical bombs which have landed on the population. They're not even registered anymore, but will be suffering physically for many, many parts of their life, a large number of whom are children. And the third tragedy is that the Syrian civil war seems to be a war that will not be ending. Because as it becomes more complex, and as I'll be relating to, as more foreign powers get involved, and as more foreign powers leave, without establishing a basis of support, i.e. the United States, the situation gets worse. So this is what we're talking about. So if you don't want to be depressed today, goodbye. Good time to get up and go and finish the cookies and have some good time outside. It is a depressing story. For someone like myself, for my colleagues at Tel Aviv University who spend all their lives studying Syria, Whenever I talk to them and ask them a question, it is quite amazing. We're meeting in the corridor. We meet in different conferences and things. What's most amazing about them, and I said, what should I be reading? And they say, they, they, they're the ones who are writing the serious articles. They say, you know, as academics writing articles, the problem has actually become that as you finish the article, the next day when it appears on the internet or a newspaper or a magazine, it's already out of date. That means the change, the rapidity of change in the Syrian situation is unbelievable. And therefore, in trying to set up in the little handouts which exist, uh, the uh, a basic uh, bibliography, uh, I prepared these many months ago, 
Uh, I just have there four authors, of which Eyal Zisser is uh, probably Israel's top Syrian expert. Anything by, by Eyal, and I've, I've read his writings, I know him personally, anything by Eyal uh, has a good chance of being correct. That means if he's anticipating something and, and some of his writings appear in the handout, uh, and generally, you can just, you know, look, write down Eyal uh, Zisser, and you'll, you'll see the uh, material. Very, very hard to keep up with Syrian events. Having said that, let me try and give some sort of overview. And as I say, I want to leave a lot of time for questions. In the Middle East, the Arab world divided itself up into two camps, and we're not talking here about the Sunni and the Shi'i, which is a religious definition, but in terms of a national division, the moderates and the radicals. Now, I speak to enough groups, and when I give them the list of moderates, they say, uh-uh, radical. And I say, hold on, let's go on to the list of radicals, and then you'll know what radical means. Radical is really radical in the Middle East. And Syria has been the leader of the radical camp. Saudi Arabia, by the way, is a leader of the moderate camp. You look at Saudi religion, not quite what we might think uh, the reform or reconstruction of the conservative movement in Judaism. But Syria is really radical. Radical for an interesting historical reasons. And I'll do a little bit, 101 background to give you an idea of why Syria turned out what it was. At the end of the First World War, the San Remo Conference, uh, and period after, there was a division of the Middle East. Essentially, the Middle East was divided between the British and the French. And the French were in Syria and Lebanon, which, by the way, were not the, the borders they have today. The borders was changed. And the French, in their very, very um, concerned uh, approach to imperialism, wherever they go, the French don't like to invest a lot of money in colonies. The British spend a little bit more. And what the French did in Syria, which was a model which they used in West Africa as well, was to try and find a group of people in the country that they're controlling, in this case, the people of Syria, and find out how those people can bear the burden, which is a tremendous economic burden, of being a colonial pay, uh, uh, client. The French are the patrons, the locals are the client. The French looked around Syria and found that the Syrians have a uh, complex heterogeneous sub-society, albeit that 80% of all Syrians are Sunni. There's a big division between the Sunni in the urban areas and the Sunni in the rural areas. It's almost like two subgroups. Then you have a small Christian population in Syria. But the Syrian Christian population was never dominant enough and it would always keep their head low. Sir, uh, Christians in Europe are, in, in, in the Middle East, I'm sorry, are in an absolutely awful position. No one looks after them. I meet Christian groups in Israel, and I say to them something which they don't like to hear. I said, if the Christians, if the world looked after the Christians of Europe, like the Jews of the world look after the Jews in Israel, the Christians would be in a good position. And I don't get many friends. And I'm telling the truth. So the Christians are very small and the Christians keep their head low. And one of the little articles I gave, you see that the Christians try not to identify with one side or the other. The survival in the Middle East is find a strong patron. And they're not quite sure who the strong patron is in history. And so Christians keep their heads very low. There's a small Kurdish group in Syria, in northern Syria. And they've got their own issue. They're trying to form their own country, and therefore they're not good as far as the French understood because they're going to have a different kind of loyalty. They've got, they, want to, they wanted in the past, and they were promised in the past, that they would have their own country. 
the French understood that they're not going to really be loyal because they've got their own national interests. There was a small Druze group. And they didn't go for the Druze group because the Druze are a religious group. And then they found the ultimate clients for French imperial goals. In the northwest past part of Syria, there, and by the way, if any of you look at the maps, there's a map which is very useful. Just uh, every now and again, you might want to look at it. it, it it's, the map I chose was because these are the areas that we have been speaking about. In the northwestern part of Syria, there were four, four small villages where a tiny group who today are something in the region of 12 to 15% of the Syrian population were very, very vulnerable. Poor villages, no work, little possibility of income, peasant people who wanted to survive. And the French went to the Alawis, Alawites or Alawis, you can call them both, went to the Alawite group and said to them the follows, we can give you a good life. We will give you power. Power in the Middle East are words that I add whenever I'm giving a 101 course. Power, dignity, honor, just to start the long process of words which are relevant in the Middle East. And the people of the Alawite villages and the four villages said absolutely fabulous. So much so that as time goes by, 60% of the Syrian army are Alawites. They are the core group of Syria. Because they were military people, and the rest of the Syrian population were trying to get their act together, the small minority Alawite group, which I said at the maximum evaluation is 15%, then learned another lesson. To survive in the Middle East, you don't have to be powerful in, in, in the army, in the military sense. And these Alawites were powerful. They were village people. They'd worked the land. They could have joined Ben-Gurion's labor Zionist movement, but they weren't invited. Here we have this unbelievable situation where they then understand that politics is the second component. And because of their military background, they managed to get into politics and to sell their military background as a good uh, uh, basis for being a politician, someone like many Israelis have done. You've been in the army, you're general, chief of staff, you can go into politics. Not too different, by the way. Not too different from Egypt and not too different from Libya and not too different from another 20 countries that one can think of. And they got into politics and then they said they have to have an ideology. And they developed what was called the BATH, B-A-A-T-H, uh, which is the rejuvenation, probably is the best translation from Arabic, or uh, the, 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 the renewal approach which was a revolutionary idea that we Syrians, we members of the Ba'ath Party, are a totally new group, and we will change the nature of the Middle East, which says we will achieve our own independence, which was very appealing. By the way, there was another Ba'ath Party in Iraq. The two Ba'ath parties hated each other to such an extent that sometimes they're on different sides in, in military conflict. The Syrian Ba'ath Party was filled with Alawites, and the most successful of all the Alawite leaders was Hafez al-Assad, the father of Bashar Assad, the president of Syria today. And he was ruthless. In that constellation, your enemy is your fellow officer. Now, we have to see what happened here. As time goes on, and we're really getting uh, into the late 40s and early 50s, Syria became a military dictatorship. However, in the period from about 1948, interesting year, you'll see, obviously, Israel's created, from the period 1948 to about 1952, 
Most of the military leadership was wiped out in coup d'etats by other military groups. So much so that a potential very strong military army was actually very weak because they had wiped out their own people, which is not unknown, tragically, in the Syrian story. Now, why did they do that? Were they just a bunch of evil people? No, no, not that. People are pragmatic in the world. They were doing it because Israel's success in 1948 was such a shock to them. And this, by the way, would be the first of the traumas that the Syrian people have found in relation to Israel. Because as I've said in some other sessions that some of you have attended, how could it possibly be that a small group of people who 25% are Holocaust survivors could possibly be able to fight? And not only did the Israelis fight, they won the 48 war, they won the 67 war, and they won the 73 war, and in all those three wars, they defeated the Syrians. So what's happening in Syrian society, and it can be in relation to Israel, or it can be in relation to other enemy. We've chosen three case studies which are somehow connected to Israel, Iran, Syria, and Jordan, but we could take many other countries which where Israel is not part of the picture. What's actually happening in these societies is this concept of brutal power becomes everything. That is what it's about. Which means you don't develop your country. And therefore Syria has been living in a poorly developed situation. Poor people, GDP per capita in Syria is about $4,000 a year. Very low. 50% of Syrians today live on $2 a day. So if you go to Starbucks, buy coffee, it's a day and a half survival. You know, we look at the figures, what we're talking about. So here the Syrians are growing up and the only hope at a certain time in this crisis, which is self-evoked with a little bit of French help, to be honest. The French, of course, denied it because why accept responsibility? What's happening now is this Alawite group is becoming the absolute core. And they are dictating issues. Democracy has absolutely no meaning. When Hafez al-Assad dies in the 1970s and Bashar al-Assad, the son, comes to the fore, there's a very interesting phenomenon that's happening. Bashar was not supposed to be the president. His older brother was, Basil. Basil was, if you know the word, Vildechaya. Crazy guy. A good officer, totally crazy, got himself killed in a, in a motor accident. And Bashar, who was an ophthalmologist in England, quiet, modest guy, delighted that he would never have to have any uh, important responsibilities, you know, like Harry and Meghan. <laughs> why, why get involved in those sort of responsibilities if Queenie is going to tell you what to do every day? This kind of situation, Buzzles, uh, Bashar is sitting on the side, um, and suddenly his brother dies, and because we're speaking about the Middle Eastern world, which is so family or clan, to use the Arabic word, hamula-oriented, that he had to come back, and he was given a quick induction, not to university, not to political science, not to conflict resolution, army. Four months in the army, he's already a colonel. The quickest way to become a colonel, almost as quick as Napoleon. You have this amazing kind of situation where Basar, who is not a military person, takes over control. But he's lived in the family, and the family is everything. And from his father to uh, uh, Uncle Rifat, who was a bit of a threat to him, it's pretty clear that there can only be one person, only one leader. What you have in many of these extended families through history, get rid of the cousins or the uncles or aunts who might get in your way. 
Basar actually manages to get the family members who could be a bit of a, a threat, and this quiet, mild guy, which he was perceived as, is taken over. What are the Western reporters saying about Bashar al-Assad at that time? He's a pushover. Let's negotiate peace with him. The only people who didn't say that is anyone who's studied Syrian history for at least half an hour. <laughs> Make peace with Syria. Sorry, guys. I believe in peace, but not when I'm speaking about the Syrians. Bashar al-Assad comes along, and he is uh, starting to take over the country. The country is in poverty. They're trying to develop plans. A lot of money was spent on uh, dams. They created 140 dams, uh, trying to improve the irrigation. The economic position is poor. By the way, the Syrians are quite well educated and, and modern. It's not a religious country. The, uh, the Alawites, which I who hadn't uh, mentioned, uh, I'm sorry, were actually a break-off of the Shia. But they, uh, they know like, nothing like the, the Iranian Shia. They're, they're a modern military kind of Shia, so they belong to that big umbrella, but they're very, very... When you say Shia, you think of Iran. Uh, the Alawis in, in, uh, in Syria are nothing like that. A very secular, very military, uh, very, uh, kind of powerful peasant people in many ways. So things aren't going well. And because there's no money, and because of clan loyalties in the Middle East, the, the little bit of money that's around is going to the inner core, to the elite. What, what's called in sociology the chronism, or the crony concept, where you have to be, you never know what the elite is. It isn't actually a family contact. It could be friendship levels. It could be many other ways of, of understanding how Middle Eastern elitism is formed. And there's total corruption and total oppression. And at a certain time, some Syrians begin to say, let's try and bring about change. 2011, the period of Middle Eastern history, which has two totally different versions, the version of what was happening when it was happening, which was totally optimistic, and the version of what 2011 really meant to the Middle East, which is the totally pessimistic and real version. Syrians at that time, looking what's happening in North African countries and particularly paying attention to Egypt and why Egypt, because from 1958 to 1961 there had been the... Uh, United Arab Republic, a crazy union between Egypt and Syria. And if you look where the maps are, you know, that's a shidduch. You know, what are you talking about? Masses of countries in between. And Israel, by chance, happens to be in the middle of those two countries as well. So this uh, UAE idea was not only a, a total failure, but was humiliation to the Syrians because Nasser, the president of Egypt, controlled the a United Arab Republic, and humiliated the Syrians. Power, pride, honor, humiliation. Point number four to understand the Middle East. Syria felt humiliated. Humiliated because Israel had defeated it. Humiliated because Egypt had controlled it for three years with no gain to Syria. Humiliated because of the Six-Day War and the Golan Heights were taken over from Syria, which they will never come to recognize, by the way. Anyone who thinks, you know, we, we've made life good for the Druze on the Golan Heights, maybe that will mean Syria will sit and have a negotiation with us. Boba Mises. Going on to the 2011. 2011 started the Syrian opposition. And what was the Syrian opposition and why was there such a strong belief in the world that this would be the end of the Syrian regime? And why was that evaluation incorrect? 
What happened in 2011, young people in the urban areas, students, same students we've seen in Tehran in the last few months, students, the same students we've seen in southern Iraq in the last few months, students, the same students we saw in Cairo in 2011, those students who are now global people, internet, no languages, are looking around the world and saying, surely there has to be a better way of living. So this is called the development of the opposition. I, the opposition has many different names. If you go into the literature, you'll see you'll find five or six different names of what the opposition is. But what do we know about the Syrian opposition? We know that a Syrian opposition was essentially, initially, very, very successful. Far more successful than people would have expected. Because even there were some young Alawite people who thought, wow, life isn't so good. My life is going to be totally army. And the, some of the young Alawites were upset about it. In fact, today, one quarter of all young Alawite men are killed, dead, because of the war. And they're suffering. So there were these groups who were beginning to speak about, let us change the reality, let us try and move things. And that is the start in 2011 of what is called the Syrian Civil War. Now the opposition, although initially, as I said, were expected to really be able to change the direction of the Middle East. If you do any analysis of the Middle East in the last hundred years, and you can find any group which has really changed society, I'm not saying change the leader, please tell me about it, because I haven't heard about it yet, because it doesn't exist. No change in the Middle East. Middle East is an area which doesn't change. You can have economic change, you can find more oil, you can have more gas, you can get richer, you can get poorer. You cannot change the basic internal structure of the Middle Eastern society, which is very hard for us in Israel who are hoping that we can one day or other really move on because the situation is intolerable from any perspective, not only Israeli perspective, for the people of the area. So what happens, the, 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 the opposition comes together, but the opposition has no central leadership, and the opposition has no stated ideology. I don't want to get involved in American politics, so what I'm saying has nothing to do with you. Any political system which has one goal, to defeat the leader as the goal, fails. You have to have much more than that. And the Syrian opposition believed only in one thing. Let's get the Assad regime out of power. It had no collective ideology. Nothing. So the opposition becomes a hodgepodge of secularists, some rural people, many cases Sunni, so you would have Sunni fighting Sunni, by the way. You'd have some Sunni who were part of the regime and some Sunni who were the opposition fighting each other. Very tough stuff. Civil wars are awful, and we find all of that in the Syrian one. By the way, uh, experts studying civil war today, that the Syrian civil war may be the worst civil war that we know of. It is ghastly. Families broken down, neighbors broken down, all the terrible things that we know about the Civil War. But let's look at the opposition. The opposition secularists kind of had a cool, cold approach to what change is about. Let's change the elite. But joining in the opposition came the jihadists, the Salafists, the Islamic radical religious people. So within the opposition, you have people who are trying to work together, but the goal is to defeat the leader. They've really got nothing in common. And as we move into 2014, 2015, 2016, it is becoming clear 
that although the opposition at some times were holding more than 60 or maybe 70% of the land, there's an institute called the Institute of War, and they bring out maps once a week, more or less, of where the various forces in Syria are. And you, I'm looking at the maps week after week after week, and I'm saying, wow, those, those oppositionists are doing well. But they were doing well because they were taking over land at that time. And what happens in the opposition, the jihadists, the religious factions, become more powerful. And as they become more powerful, the system breaks down. When ISIS, the Islamic State, takes over, and they in Syria and they in Iraq are unbelievably successful because they have a one goal, which is to not only to destroy the infidel and the demi, the Christians and the Jews, but to destroy all Muslims who are not pure in the way that they understand purity. Terrible organization. Brutal as anything. And so what happens with the opposition groups? That you have opposition forces which are actually having this major problem with other members of the opposition at, at that particular time. The situation gets worse. You begin to have increasingly the involvement of outside forces. The Russians become involved. Let no one misunderstand long-term Russian goals under Vladimir Putin. Putin is, is, out, is there, and he just kicked out his government because he's a total dictator. His goal in the world is to be an equal rival to the United States. That's what he wants to do. And he sees in the Middle East an ideal arena because the Russians historically have looked for places of confusion and found who they support and nurture that group on a long-term basis. They don't in and out. That's not. Excuse me for saying it. They don't have a policy of bring the boys home. Yet. None of that. And therefore, what we're finding is this amazing situation that Russia gets involved, Iran gets involved on the basis that this is a Shi'i, Shi'i kind of connection. It's nothing to do with the religious issue. Iran wants to control regions. Syria is a good reason. Remember, Syria has got access to the Mediterranean Sea. It's pivoted above Israel, very important from an Iranian perspective. And they get involved. And even Turkey, which is one of the most complex foreign policies to understand, moves at some time looking sympathetic to the Syrian regime and at some times the opposition. Well, against that complex, the regime, where almost all the Syrian army units remain loyal, you have a very, very minimal number of soldiers uh, moving over to the rebel side. You have Russia with a very clear ideology. Russian uh, military activity and bases on the coast, in the coastal area. They've got important bases there. Iran seeing and believing and investing vast numbers of soldiers and vast amounts of money, which Iran really doesn't have, for the Syrian battle. And why do they do so well? Because the Western world is firstly not prepared to make Syria yet one other battleground. America already had its Vietnam. Honestly, doesn't want again. Doesn't matter whether we're talking about Obama or Trump. Essentially, they belong to the same category. And therefore, they're not going to get involved. But the Americans are, and the British, and the French are involved in one thing. And they want to end ISIS. Because ISIS is perceived in the Western world as the main enemy. Countries far away don't understand local issues. They, they want a one policy. It's good for elections. 
Our goal is A, B, C. That, that, that's what the Western world does. We, we don't understand in the Western world the complexity of the kind of countries we're talking about. So what's happening here is that Western involvement against the cruel Syrian regime which was dropping day after day chemical bombs on innocent people isn't a Western priority. The Western world's not too different from the others. Let's, we must be, you know, we have to know what we're talking about. They didn't really care. Now, on some occasions, and Obama said this, certainly he was very clear about it. He said, we don't want to get too involved in Syria. And he said, the Russians have told me that they're going to stop their allies, the Syrians, dropping the chemical bombs. Thank you. The bombs just carried on. And presidents have their own internal agendas, and one understands that. But it certainly made no difference. The Western world wanted ISIS to get defeated in Syria and in Iraq. As soon as that had happened, the Western world moved out because they've got other important agendas in the world, sometimes in terms of internal politics and sometimes interest in other regions of the world, is it the China Sea or wherever it might be. So what's actually happened, and I want to get towards the end of what I'm saying because I think the questions that you people have and what you understand and what you think uh, is, is, to, is important because it's such a changing situation. What's actually happened, a tragedy that we know about has not really attracted the interest of the world. Basically because, you know, unless you really want to be depressed, which is my main interest in life, uh, who wants to study this stuff? Who wants to get involved in it? Who wants to really care about the fact that the Americans left the Kurdish area after years and years of relationships? And then the Americans say they didn't leave, but we really are. But the Kurds, once again, it's a whole other lecture. Ari only wanted me to give three sessions. I wanted to give 22. He said, go home, stay in Israel. Uh, the, um, no one cares. No one cares. There's one country that cares, Israel. Over the years, wounded Syrians, in higher numbers than we would ever think, and I keep saying, by the way, history books on the Middle East still have to be written. Where possible injured Syrians are brought over the northern border, in certain hospitals in northern Israel, wounded Syrians, adults and children, are put into wards where you check the loyalty of the hospital staff, because no faces should ever be opened, no should be declared. The staff is Arab, Arab speakers speaking to Arabs. Remember the Syrians, when they hear Hebrew or hear the Israeli, it doesn't make them feel so happy. They've, they've lived a half a century of propaganda against Israel. And therefore, Israel, in an amazing project, quiet, and sometimes we talk very loudly, and sometimes I wish we would shut up. Just, I would say, 350 days a year, but uh, not all the time. An amazing, amazing project. There are three organizations in Israel that go around the world, and the Syrian project has been the most difficult and most important, where we bring people over in the middle of the night, we look after them in hospitals, we wait for them to get better, we wait till the border area is clear. God forbid that anyone would see them coming from Israel back to Syria, and they go back to Syria as relatively healthy people. It is a tragic case study. To update to the last few minutes, hours, days, um, the group that worries me are the Kurds. What's happening in the northern area of Syria? The northern area is where the Kurds live. 
The Kurds are well organized, military people. They took over quite large areas. They developed an autonomous area. They've done it in uh, eastern Turkey. They've got their autonomous areas, kind of semi-autonomous. They had an autonomous area in northern Syria. They were doing well because they were getting Western support. Uh, the American government decided to leave for their own, its own legitimate reasons. Um, and uh, the Kurds are all by themselves there. Now, what's happening in Syria at the moment, the next moment, the next story, the, the episode of the book that hasn't been written, will be the following. In Turkey, there are a large number of Syrians who fled Syria and went into Turkey. Erdogan says, what do I need these people for? More than two million. I'll send them back to Syria to northern Syria, where the Kurds are. There's an ongoing battle that's happening there between Syrians who fled Syria, who are kind of now pseudo-supporters of the Ottoman Caliphate of the future Turkey, are moving into northern Syria, and it's one massive mess. There's bombing of civilians in rebel-held areas in northern Syria, Yesterday, the day before yesterday, 80-odd people killed. The tragedy, numbers of killed people don't even count anymore. No one counts anymore. So this is what you came to listen to me for. Terrible story, you know. So sad, so sad. And the sad things are when human beings actually feel that they're looking at a situation and they don't quite know what the solution is. And let me end with my own personal dilemma. I'm trying to find out who the good guys and the, excuse the male language, good guys and the bad guys of the world are. I dislike the Syrian, Syrian regime for everything they've done from the days of Hafez al-Assad to the period of Basha. What happens if the opposition wins? It could well be an Al-Qaeda kind of opposition. It could be the revival of the Islamic State. So that's no good either. You know when life becomes depressing? When the two solutions that you have are both bad solutions. And that's what I want to say about the Syrian civil war. It is tragic. Who knows what should be? People who say, let's invest money, we'll solve the problem. It's not money. Let's kill whatever group we want. It's not what it's about. It's one of those stories of human history where someone like myself, a social historian, believes that I want to deal with poetry. This stuff is so sad. Thank you very much. We have 16 minutes for questions. I am most concerned about Erdogan and his power, has made Turkey so powerful and their invasion of Syria. And would you address that? Good. The Turks, like the Russians, both very pragmatic countries, and you're absolutely right, uh, the Turkish role is, is worried for a number of reasons. Firstly, Turkey's part of NATO. So when you have a NATO power, and the NATO concept is very important uh, in terms of trying to stabilize areas, uh, NATO as an organization has done a pretty good job although NATO is essentially more interested in Europe, more interested in Russia. When I'm in Poland, everyone speaks about NATO. Um, but uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Erdogan has looked at the world, has looked at Syria, has looked at chaos, and uh, Turkey is somewhat like Russia that find areas of chaos, go in, send your soldiers in, dominate it, and eventually, as you're saying essentially, you will one day once again establish the great Turkish Caliphate, 
which existed in the great uh, leaders of Turkish history from the 16th century onwards, very much part of the ongoing Turkish ethos, that will be repeated again, so, so believe the, the Turks. It's the Ottoman dream, not the Turkish dream, which means it's the greater area. You're absolutely right. It's going to be very problematic. Their involvement with the Western world is very problematic. Where they are, they have very strategic borders, very strategic areas of, of where they were. Uh, Turkey, when it's been a more modern Western country, has been a great ally to the West. Um, Mustafa Kemal, who changed Turkey from the old Turkey to the modern Turkey in the early 1920s, uh, certainly gave the Middle East a stable Western-based kind of society which no longer exists. The other thing about Turkey is it's religious bent. It's becoming much more religious. Most Turks are not religious. You, for those of you who've been around in Istanbul, even, the, in, even in Ankara, uh, the capital. You go there, you speak. I've had Turkish students in Israel, by the way. Uh, two years ago, I had two Turkish students. Terrific students. Uh, one who spoke English, I didn't understand one word. But the second one, I actually could communicate with. Uh, terrific people, terrific people. He wanted to, one of them wanted to do a, uh, an analysis of, uh, of Zionism, and he was very genuine about it. He was fascinated by it. So I agree with you. Uh, uh, Turkey's a very, very serious, one other player in this complicated world. And what's the threat of Turkey? And now I want to juxtapose it to the Western way of looking at the world. The Western way of looking at the world is maximum eight years, in America in particular, from one president to another president. You change policy. Four years or eight years. In, in the Middle East, you don't have that because the leaders are there essentially until they die. So it's long-term strategic planning, which is extremely powerful in the kind of world that we're in at the moment. And uh, whereas the Western world moves in and out for one reason or another, legitimate in democracies, uh, that will not be the case of Turkey. And even Erdogan's gone, he has inculcated this new value, the new dreams of the great Ottoman Empire, which is very deeply embedded, and we will be with that for an extended period of time. Excellent question, and thank you so much. Yeah. So the number of people that Israel has helped from Syria, what would you approximate the number at? And then for the future, those people who've had a more positive experience with the Israelis and the medical system, do you see any hope for that in terms of long-term impact with Israel? I love American optimism, and it's healthy. But who are we talking about? We're talking about people who will not talk about it. See, these people are, even assume that some of them are very talented and get into important positions. Someone says, but I thought you were ill. You had a broken leg. You know, what happened? That person never says, the Israelis helped me. So your idea is, I agree. I absolutely agree. Grassroots assistance to Countries is very important. This, by the way, was the Israeli view of Africa in the period under Golda Meir. Golda said, if you want to make friends of Africans, go down into the villages and give them better water supply. That's going to help. And it's a very healthy issue. And even if it doesn't always have good political goals, it's a humanistic approach, which I think is excellent. Unfortunately, in the power politics of the Middle East, the good work that we do, and I imagine it's several thousand people, and there are also food and medical supplies, supplies which go over the border as well, which might be saving many thousands as well. Once again, you know, these are the books that haven't been written, but it, it's a significant number. It is really a significant number. It's not one or two, it's thousands of people in one way or the other. It might be directly or indirectly. Unfortunately, in terms of the direct help to Israel, no. But is it worthwhile? Yes. And I think that's the kind of way we look at it. And I just wish that some of the projects, we, when we do good things, we don't always do good things, but when we do good things like this, it, it, it is a pity that it doesn't, doesn't go further. And some Israelis are opposed to it. They say we've got other issues. If there's a no gain, what, what sort of business is this? It's a no gain 
gain. You know, that's what, if you want to be a pragmatist, no, they're right. But it, it, it's good stuff. Please. Where is the oil in Syria, and how does it come into play in this whole situation? Okay. Oil, uh, Syria has limited oil resources, not too much. You know, most of the oil is today in the world global oil. People think that you get the oil from a particular country. There's a tremendous amount of global oil that's coming in. The Saudis, by the way, have been, historically speaking, good friends of the Syrians. Very strange. Totally different kind of regimes. But at a certain time, there were sort of mixture, uh, kind of families marrying Syrian women, marrying Saudi men and things like that. So it essentially comes from the Saudi Arabian area, from United Arab uh, UAR, a uh, little bit I think comes from Qatar. Qatar sells uh, uh, oil and gas to absolutely anyone. It doesn't matter who they are. A pragmatic country. Um, and, and so that's really where, where they get it. But um, you, oil means you have to pay for it. And uh, there's only so much philanthropy going around the Middle East. So uh, in that realm of trying to develop the economy of Syria, it's, a, it's an uphill battle. And at the moment, um, the cost of the civil war in Syria is estimated at $400 billion. That's not small change. For Qatar, okay, but for the countries that we're talking about and countries that live on $2 a day, we begin to see that uh, all these issues are, are kind of really survival issues. There was a question at the back. Could you please pass that? Oh, <laughs> I'll, I'll pass it to you. Um, you said there's really no good solution. Uh, no, there's no good guys to win. What does Israel's government? I mean, how would, since they're they're next door neighbors, how would they like to um, see this resolve? Sound like resolution. How does the Israeli government want it? Well, the Israeli government, by the way, um, spends quite a lot of its time attacking Iranian installations in Syria. The, the Israeli government policy is clear. By the way, regardless of which government, it's not, a, it's not a political issue. The Israeli government says, anyone threatening us, we prefer for the threat not to be on our land, but on their land which has been Israeli policy since 1948. So basically, the best case scenario for Israel would be that the greater threat than Syria, because Syria is not a, a massive threat to Israel because it's got so many of its own issues. Uh, Iran is a greater threat. Hezbollah in Lebanon is a greater threat. So the Israeli policy is basically to give a very, very clear message to Iran which is number one threat to the state of Israel, that we're on your tail all the time. And that's why that's this hitting day in and day out, Israelis are hitting. By the way, trying not to cause too many deaths, but passing a very, very clear message to Iran because of its presence in Syria, that we're looking at Iran all the time. The, the main goal is not actually an anti-Syrian threat because in, in the reality that we're understanding in the Middle East, Syria is not a major threat. Not a major threat. It has been in the past. Definitely has been. But, uh, you know, we got there Golan Heights in 48 hours. So, th thank you, Syria. We know what you're all about. By the way, there's another very interesting relationship between Israel and Syria. In the 1970s, Syria threatened to attack Jordan. I'll be speaking about that in the next session. That's why I'm telling you, because I want you to come. Uh, the, uh, the, um, the Jordanians were very worried about it, um, and uh, Syria is much stronger than Jordan. Uh, Israel told the Syrians that if they actually send the tanks, the tanks were going south, almost to the Jordanian border, uh, Israel told the Syrians, uh, if you attack uh, Jordan, bye-bye Syria. At that moment, in three hours, the tanks all turned around and went home. 
So the, that's the subtle threats of how Middle Eastern politics work. Um, and that was actually what happened. I'll just ask, we have asked a few questions. I just want to get some people who haven't in other situations asked. Excuse me. Thank you. This is the guy, every day I see him, he brings a new tie. Okay. And I've only got two, so I'm jealous. Thank you for the publicity. Um, obviously, this is an enormous uh, uh, worldwide tragedy, what's happening in, in Syria. But can an argument be made that it's actually good for Israel that destabilization of an enemy and really more than one enemy, because Israel, uh, Iran is devoting enormous resources to uh, Syria. Syria used to be a major benefactor of, uh, of destabilizing Lebanon. To have Syria destabilized like this and in a long-term destabilization is actually helpful for Israel? Is there an argument to be made? By the way, it is not an unacceptable thesis. Not an unacceptable thesis. I would summarize it in the following terminology. I think lack of stability can be for short-term gains, but long-term losses. That means what happens in the Middle East, what's been happening in the Middle East all the period, is because of this tremendous unrest, you've never really had any partners to discuss things. Not even talking about partners for peace. That means stability keeps something, it's kind of like a pressure cooker situation. It stops the boiling over. But a pressure cooker that goes on too long means that the water starts to dry until the pot at the bottom burns. And that's what one has to be very careful about. That means the long-term instability of these sort of regions um, allow other things to happen. The excellent question on Turkey. Turkey, so Iran is weakened. And Iran's a threat, okay, definitely. Although Iran is, is going to be able to use its nuclear uh, capacity. Uh, whatever's happening anywhere else, that's not going to change. But it, 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 the other issue is that those sort of situations bring other initiatives out of the woodwork. So, you know, one, one has that one is a little bit less, but something else is, is appearing on the other side. So it's kind of that, that back and forward kind of stuff. So that's what I'd basically say. You know, your, your, your thesis has validity, no doubt. As a long-term venture, I wonder. I wonder because when does this thing explode and you don't know. It's harder to know what it is. You see, the other thesis that is sometimes presented in Israel is that a deeply, deeply frustrated Iran will do something silly. So, you know, it's this kind of delicate, delicate line. I just want to, I know time is up, but I just want to say something else about how Israel deals with it. Israel deals with it is by, I think, and I'm giving a plug for, for Israel here. Israel deals with it by producing some of the most important literature on these kind of issues. I'm reading all kinds of sources, and I'm biased because the people I read and believe are the people I know. Some even buy me a cup of coffee every now and again. Very rarely, but they do. They're good. They're good. They are really good. Many of them have been through the Israeli intelligence. Many of them continue to advise the Israeli intelligence. Israeli academics on modern Middle East issues cannot make a mistake. If you're sitting in Georgetown... And you come out with a beautiful theory in your air-conditioned office, okay, with some good people in Georgetown, no, no criticism. But if you made a mistake, it doesn't matter. In Israel, you can't afford to make the, a, a mistake. So what I would say, if you're looking for material on the kind of things that I'm talking, you'll hear, you'll read it, you'll see what I'm saying appears in, in, in documents. There's at, at Tel Aviv University, which has a whole lot of different uh, subsections. It's the Dayan Center, um, 
It comes under the auspices of the Middle East uh, Department of, of Tel Aviv University. There are lots of different sort of subsections. You'll find excellent material. I personally use something which is called Middle Tel, Tel Aviv Notes, which I like. Uh, it's uh, people who write two-page things, people who've been in the field, very readable stuff, which is important. There's also INSS, an Israeli uh, organization, which has podcasts. It's the top security group of Israel. Almost all the experts in INSS are uh, uh, security people. Forgotten international something, something I just always notice, INSS. Uh, also very, very uh, good material. So, you know, for those of you who are trying to follow this, I would certainly say those two organizations, in particular, by the way, BESA, B-E-S-A, of Bar Ilan University does good stuff as well. You know, it's not unique to one university or to one structure. So put the, those together, Tel Aviv University, Middle East, INSS, and BESA of Bar Ilan. I think that's kind of a way you keep some sort of um, idea of what's going on. And quite honestly, all I can say, um, if you're reading Middle East material, have a full bottle of vodka next to you. <laughs> Thank you very much.